0: Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about the future of design education. Today on the show, I am joined by the furniture designer, educator, and the president of the Rhode Island School of Design, Roseanne Summerson. Roseanne actually studied industrial design at RISD and ran a successful studio for about 10 years or so before returning to the school in 1985 to teach furniture design there and eventually leading and helping to start their new furniture design program. Then in 2015, she was appointed the 17th president of RISD after serving as provost since 2012. This was a fascinating conversation for me and one that falls into a recent series Uh, on the sort of administration and leading of design institutions, which is something that I'm very interested in. So I was really excited to talk to Roseanne about her career and how she thinks about her presidency. We begin the conversation talking about her early interest in photography, actually, and how she transitioned into industrial and furniture design. We talk about how she started teaching and the influence her professional practice had on the classroom before talking about her role as president and how this unique background shapes how she thinks about this work. We also talk about design education more generally and where she sees it heading and kind of the role of design education in today's world. Over the years, I've talked to many, many RISD faculty and alumni on the show, so it was Truly a complete honor to talk with Roseanne about her vision for the school and her unique journey to leading an institution like RISD. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. If you are a fan of the podcast and wanna help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that features behind the scenes content, links and articles from former guests about design and writing and criticism and practice and all the things we talk about on the show as well as the previews of upcoming episodes. Scratching the Surface is fully supported through these memberships. So if you like the show and wanna help support its ongoing production, I hope that you would consider joining. Thank you, as always, for listening and enjoy this conversation with Roseanne Summerson. You originally were interested in photography before you got into industrial design and furniture design. And I kind of want to start there. What was it about photography that interested you? And then I guess when you went to RISD, you kind of discovered industrial design and furniture design and made this shift. Then what was it that then kind of pulled you in the other direction?
1: So uh, the interest in photography uh, really stemmed from um, admiration for my older brother who in high school was a photographer and um, somehow through a connection that we all had summer jobs working for the Philadelphia Folk Festival. Mm. And uh, my brother, I did writing and uh, biography work and my brother was able to do photography. And through that um, connection, he actually got to go to Chicago and and um, do photography with a lot of the Chicago blues greats, Junior Wells, mm. Buddy Guy, those folks um, mm-hmm. who... Were printed in uh, prints that he had in his bedroom, big poster sized prints, and so he created this kind of ad hoc um, dark room in our basement, and called me down one day and said, "Look at this," and you know, put a piece of paper when there were still de- developing trays into mm-hmm. uh, a tray, and this you know, magic of this photograph came to life, and it just kind of blew me away. And um, I think also I had a very strong uh, sense of visual acuity because I had grown up kind of helping to take care of my grandfather who was blind and I sort of saw Mm. myself as his eyes. So I was always describing things to him and trying to create experiences that would let him experience the visual world. And so it really um, increased my vocabulary around understanding and explaining the visual world. And that was a very natural bridge to photography. When, yeah. I, um, when I decided to go to RISD, it was because, well, uh, before I even went to RISD, I, um, I finished high school a year early. I was really ready to be done with high school. So I ended <laughs> up doing um, two years of credits in one, kind of worked really hard and got mm-hmm. out. And then um, saw this little ad in the back of a magazine about a school for photography and creative writing in the northern um, reaches of Denmark and I wrote them a letter and got in for a summer program um, which I um, assume was going to be a summer only and I really loved it there and ended up staying um, for most of the year in Denmark and at that school we were really learning very technical photography we were working in large format 4 by 5 8 by 10 making all our own chemicals from things that we got at the pharmacy and really beginning to understand the technical aspects of making prints, and um, from the, you know from the com- composition side to the printing side. When I got to RISD, I applied there because at the time Aaron Siska and Harry Callahan mm-hmm. were mm-hmm. here, and they were very famous photographers. So I was excited about working with them. But um, when I got here, I um, actually took a course, which we have something called winter session, which you're supposed to take something outside of the area that you think you'll study. And I took a woodworking class and I just kind of fell in love with it. The challenge was (laughs) um, so intense and I had to use parts of intelligence that I'd never used before. And I really liked the idea of making things that people could directly interact with and use. So um, it Mm. kind of shifted my focus.
0: I mean, that's interesting, you know, talking about kind of wanting to make things that people could use. And what I thought was interesting about what you're just saying is that you kind of taking care of your, your grandfather, you saw seeing almost as a, it was a useful thing. It was a way to help somebody. And I was curious if you kind of saw these activities you were doing at that age as artistic, as creative, or were they Function, documentary, literally helping someone see. Uh, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, definitely. No, I think I was most interested in the intersection between the two. So, mm, you know, okay. thinking about it as a visual and creative process, but with an outcome that would actually include other people. It was more about the idea of bringing people into it who didn't necessarily have the ability to make or or even experience objects like that so in a way it probably drew off of what I was doing for my grandfather but there was sort of a um a a service in a weird way aspect to it Mm -hmm. but not so much around function it was more around expanding people's experience of Mm -hmm. visual and aesthetic objects Mm -hmm. but also in a way that was really pleasant to use and well-designed and smart and use materials well and all of those things. But I do think that there was a, it was kind of the intersection between the, you know, the creative and the, the not so much useful as a driving force, but more engaging, I guess.
0: And so you then kind of dove right into industrial design and and we can then connect this to then when you go back to RISD um, to teach and you help start the furniture design program and so at that time when you were a student um, industrial design I imagine was not just furniture but also products of all scales and shapes and sizes.
1: Yeah I mean I won't get into the politics at the time because okay. um, I okay. wasn't a direct path into into industrial design, but I start. I was told to go into sculpture first and I went into sculpture mm. and I really loved um, my classes there and I think did pretty well, but the head of the department said you could at the time, and I think it's changed now, but you can't make anything <laughs> functional in this department. So, okay. Um, so they said, if you want to do this, you have to move into industrial design. So I moved into industrial design oh, okay. um, really because I wanted to make things in wood and, um, the industrial design department at the time had a graduate program in furniture design that was run by Tay Frid, who was a kind of Danish Mm. master. And so there was sort of a little, um, hidden wood graduate program within the industrial design department. There were two different, um, master's degrees. And so I was working alongside of those graduate students, um, who were, you know, teaching me a lot about, um, technical aspects that I just hadn't had before, um, so, it, but I also did take all the industrial design requirements. So, I took um, courses that also were the basis for architecture students and, you know, we oh, okay. learn geology and, and sort of statistics and um, lots of different things. And the design work between the kind of um, designing and making that I learned in sculpture and the formal um, design. Um, background that I learned in industrial design it was actually a really nice bridge that made sense with the work that I wanted to do
0: the reason I was kind of asking that question is I was curious about um industrial design being this kind of wide expansive field and you seem to really focus fairly early on furniture um and then you know after you graduated you went on to be a furniture designer with with your own studio I was kind of curious about what it was about furniture as opposed to um you know, like kitchen gadgets or, mm-hmm. um, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. What, what was, why was furniture so interesting to you?
1: Well, um, I really liked the idea of making something well that had a strong aesthetic and, a, and again, a way for people to engage with it. And um, I, you know, the craft of it was really important for me and the material exploration. And um, I think in retrospect, also at the time, it was a very male field. And I felt Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. as a female designer, I had certain attributes to bring to the kind of ongoing dialogue within the studio furniture world that was unique, or not maybe unique, but certainly different. And that represented things that I cared about. And so I felt um, that there was a lot for me to say in that world. Um, I was also interested in the The design work that we did in industrial design, but at the time, industrial design was very product based and right. um, not so much, you know, service or systems based as it is now. And um, I was less interested in putting a lot of, you know, plastic or um, you know, manufactured mm-hmm, mm-hmm. things in the world. I was really more concerned with putting right. objects that had that human um, commitment in the making, and then the recipient. It was sort of a conversation between the designer maker and the person who got to enjoy it on the other end. And that really fascinated me, that, that dialogue.
0: So was your practice primarily um, early on? I mean, I, I guess kind of, as it's continued less about, um, I don't mean to, to set these as as opposite or or sound like I'm making a value judgment between Mm -hmm. them, but less about mass produced things. And you were, you were kind of working with people to create some sort of bespoke or unique for a client?
1: A lot of my practice was. The the majority of my practice was one-of-a-kind objects um, for
0: exhibitions
1: or for clients. And I did do some limited editions, some small batch production runs. But even within that, there was often variation. And only later in my career did I start to do some more mass-produced items that were actually built by external factories. But for me, the control and the kind of quality and commitment of the workmanship or, um, you know, and the use of, you know, really special material just required a kind of different uh, cost structure because, you know, a piece could take six months to make. So um, it was definitely more of a kind of bespoke at the beginning anyway, and through most of my early career. More of a gallery kind of process than a um than a factory or store outlet kind of um process
0: yeah, it's so interesting, and i mean i I just like am embarrassed that I just assumed and i I looked at your work and I just assumed that um you know as a someone who studied industrial design and furniture design that that these pieces were kind of the intention was mass production, so I find it so fascinating um that I just kind of had never even. <laughs> thought about it the other way it's kind of embarrassing
1: yeah it's not a field that has great support anymore because things have changed but at the time yeah it was also you know kind of a feminist statement that because Mm, i would mm -hmm. put things in shows and people would say who made this for you or i'd go to get materials and people would say lady what are you trying to do and so i really felt i had a an obligation to um which has actually proved Um, very important for a whole new generation of women who feel empowered to work in materials and processes that at the time were I was kind of a phenomenon and you know there were a small group of us it wasn't just me but it was really not common to have women making things at the level of extreme craftsmanship and technical um -hmm. finesse that I was putting into my work. And so it really had a, an impact on changing the field and opening it up. Uh, I think men at the time who were working were much more interested in kind of demonstrating their technical um, capabilities. Mm. And I think women were bringing in more of a narrative and more of a, um, a different kind of, seri- you know, all in our own ways, different kinds of factors that really expanded the field.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit more because you worked, you know, you, you ran this studio. Um, and then, like 10 years after you finished at RISD, you go back um, mm-hmm. to teach. And was that part of the kind of desire to teach? Or what was it about um, teaching that interested you? Was it kind of talking about these ideas with with other people?
1: i um I was asked to come back and teach by my former teacher and i mm. um, I really felt um, honored in a way that he asked me he asked me if I would come in because he was thinking about retiring and run his graduate program and um, mm. I um, didn't have a master's degree at the time because there weren't really a lot of strong programs oh. that I yeah you when know, I wanted to go to in my field and um, I you know sp- interviewed with the Dean who was an architect and I said you know why would you hire me I, I don't even have a master's degree <laughs> and he said well you have the professional equivalent and then he pointed out to me that my my teacher mm. didn't even have a college degree so um, I oh, interesting yeah I went so when I came and I, I rewrote and rebuilt an entire graduate degree and um, I think I was fascinated because I felt really fortunate that I had opportunities that weren't um, widely available, and I really felt like my approach to teaching was not so much to take information and transfer it from one to another, mm-hmm. but really to open up doors for other people to find their own way of working. And I found that I was, you know, okay at it, and um, uh, it, it it seemed it, it became really rewarding and. <laughs> You know, I've probably, I, I added it up at one point, I think I've taught over 600 students in my teaching career and oh wow, I'm still in touch with a majority of them. I mean, you know, they, I know you've interviewed some of them, but they are, yeah. I mean, you know, it's a kind of um in a way privilege to work with all of these talented individuals and watch them grow their own careers. So it's very rewarding work.
0: Yeah. I mean, like I said before we started recording, I just interviewed uh, Josh Owen last week and he, I I didn't tell him that I was going to be interviewing you. And he he mentioned the influence of your teaching on his practice. Mm. Um, And so I think you're right. I think it did kind of have a profound impact on people. Did you have any interest in teaching before you got that call? Was that something you thought I might like to do this, or I could be good at this?
1: Well, uh, you know, in a little way, when I was uh, uh, in uh, in middle school, I um, volunteered to teach reading to kids who were, who, had, who did mm-hmm. not have literacy. And I really mm-hmm. found that very rewarding. Uh, it was challenging, but I, I really liked it. And then um, when I was still, uh, in my studio full-time, which was going really well. And I, you know, it was a real decision. Do I want to leave this? Cause my yeah. studio work was sustaining me and I was building my studio. Um, but I got asked to do a two week um, favor for a public school system in, in Boston where I was living at the time um, to be a substitute for somebody that had been busted for drugs or something. And so I, um, I agreed to do it for two weeks. And then the two weeks turned into a full year of teaching kindergarten through eighth grade, woodworking, sheet metal, and mechanical drawing, um, which was very interesting Mm. at the kindergarten level. But um, I, uh, they wanted me to stay on. And I, and I just said, you know, no, this really isn't my, um, you know, I, I, I want to go back to my studio and then just at that time RISD called and I thought well if I'm going to teach you know let me teach graduate students at RISD that's much more in keeping with where my work is coming yeah. than teaching as much as I loved the kids you know my life calling was not teaching um, sheet metal to second graders so um, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah so that it was just kind of fortuitous timing I would say and I was, teaching, I was teaching part-time at first so that I was able to really do both.
0: That's exactly what my next question mm-hmm. was going to be. I was wondering about that kind of intersection or the relationship between the studio work and especially when the dean says, you know, you have this professional practical experience. How was that filtering in to the teaching work and then vice versa? Was teaching then having an influence on how you were thinking about your own work?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's inevitable that they would have cross influence. I think um, the, uh, I was fortunate to be sort of moving fast forward in a field that was um, developing fast. At the time, there was lots of interest in collecting the kind of work that I was making. And, um, you know, shows were doing very well, and opportunities were increasing. And, you know, um, and I love sharing all that professional information with my students, many of whom wanted to do what I was doing. Some you know, wanted to do something entirely different. But I think um, at RISD, all of the faculty have to be involved in professional practice in their fields. Right. So, for me, it was um, very exciting to be able to kind of mentor at the same time as teach. And um, you know, I think in terms of the return, On my own um, building of ideas, um, I I had to do a lot of reading and and, uh, Mm -hmm. kind of exposing myself to different histories and different things so that I could teach well. And that certainly allowed me to expand my own thinking in my work. I I wouldn't say that I directly um, got ideas for work from my students, but I think it was more in the preparation for guiding them that I also was expanding my own knowledge base.
0: Right. And that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of why I was asking. Cause I'm, I'm a fairly new teacher. I've been teaching um, adjunct at schools here in New York where I'm, where I live again um, mm-hmm. for the last five years or so and have found that being in the classroom again has kind of reignited what got me excited about design when I was their age. Mm, Um, And that excitement has then come back into the work that I do as a designer. And I haven't fully thought through what it is about the classroom that generates that excitement in me. And so I was kind of curious for you as someone who is also doing both kind of practice and teaching, um, if you saw kind of uh, relationships or or a crossover there.
1: Yeah, I think uh, two things that come to mind. One is that you know my approach to teaching was so much about establishing your own personal approach and voice, and, mm-hmm. you know, and and building that so that it wouldn't have made sense for me to see something that would sort of ricochet back to me in a direct way, but um <laughs> right. you right. know, I but I think that um the um getting into the minds of all different ways of thinking certainly helped make me more flexible as a designer. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. The other thing that I would say, which was a complete um, uh, cheap shot in a way, was that I would do this one assignment with students that was about music, and it's a long, complicated thing, but it was about um, making a form that sort of represented a, a kind of piece of music for someone that was very unfamiliar with the music. There was a lot more to it than that, but it, the, the huh. whole purpose okay. of it was for me to learn about contemporary music from what my students were listening to, because I didn't know contemporary music through each, you know, decade. <laughs> so I was, yeah. I was finding out like, what was the greatest stuff that students were listening to. And so that was a direct right. um, gain. But, <laughs> um, it, it was also um, in a way a symbolic, um, statement about really keeping in touch with what was at the edge of culture for each generation. And um, from a design perspective, that was very valuable to learn because, you know, they're thick in it and um, partly why they wanted to learn from me was that I had a longer sense of history and evolution. Partly what I could learn from them was what was the newest, latest, greatest thing. And um, (laughs) so that was a, a beneficial, you know, relationship.
0: Yeah. I want to talk more about what you were saying about kind of your pedagogical approach was to hone in on students' individual voices. And you had mentioned earlier that you were very interested in uh, the narrative and the story around the work as opposed to just the craftsmanship, which mm-hmm. is kind of how it was was taught or thought about at the time. And that the... I, the I was first aware of you from the book, Critic- the art of critical making that you you mm-hmm. published when you were provost, which I think is tapping into all of these ideas. Now mm-hmm. kind of hearing you talk about your own, um, your own approach and, and, and journey. And I'm kind of curious how that, how, how do you think about the intersection of narrative voice, um, kind of expression with things like craftsmanship um, the technical skills how do those things start to kind of interact and talk to each other in the classroom or how do you kind of hit on both of those
1: so I think in part um, there's this I think that good design is brings those issue those things together mm-hmm, and certainly mm-hmm, you know good mm-hmm. design that involves making or even specifying for production really is about having a cultural um, anchor in a way or position,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that part of it has gotten even more um, uh, important now, as we're really understanding the assumptions and biases that are built into history and the decorative <laughs> art, yeah. and the art history, etc., and really untangling those and making space for new voices to be leading voices Um, So Mm -hmm. it's actually something I think more relevant now, even than then when I started teaching. But it it was that sense of, um, you know, I was always really proud when someone said that they couldn't tell from someone's work that they had studied with me because I was not interested in Mm. replicating. And I could see in other programs, you could really tell who someone had studied with and yeah I think that's kind of a in a way, um, again, a more well, it's certainly something that a lot of faculty here at RISD are also very proud of that they are develop they are helping to educate really independent thinkers who have um, their own aesthetics and points of view. and that, to me, is how the fields evolve. and um, but within that, there, I believe that um, there is has to be an intentionality about making. It's not that everyone has to, you know, be an extreme crafts, crazy person and, you know, make things <laughs> that are impossible to make, but they have to make things that have techniques that are in alignment with their philosophical approach. And so understanding right. what those decisions were based on, understand, you know, I used to often say to students who were rejecting the kind of tediousness of learning certain things, show me that you can do it once and then you can break all the rules. But I just need to know that you understand the principles of the rules that you're breaking. And, um, and then I was really encouraging about pushing the boundaries outside of the kind of history. Um, But I just, I really felt that there was a baseline language that made a more rigorous thinker. um, Once your hands and your brain had that intelligence together.
0: Yeah yeah i i agree with that 100 percent. i love what you said about you know kind of telling your students i need i i want to see that you understand the rules before you you break them i gave a typography assignment i'm teaching an intro to typography class this mm-hmm. semester and i gave a typography assignment that was um very strict um and i'm i'm some my kind of approaches like you in that i don't want people to try to be like me, or mm-hmm. I don't want their work to look like me. Um, and I said literally that exact same thing in class just yesterday. Um, <laughs> I just need to see that you know the rules before you can kind yeah. of push this further. So yeah, I know exactly what you mean.
1: Now, students um, today would probably say, well, who sets the rules? You know, I mean, right. it's a really interesting moment, because the rules are based on certain principles that a lot of students are pushing up against. And I really admire that. Um, so those become really fruitful du- places for dialogue. But I, I, yeah. I want to make sure that the intention when someone is taking that approach is not because they're avoiding learning something, but rather because they have something else to to propose.
0: Right, right, exactly. And I think you're exactly right about, well, where do these rules come from? And that's something that even I, um, as the, teacher I'm kind of pushing up against and it's like, well, okay, what of these rules do they actually, or, you know, and I'm saying rules with quotes around them. Sure. Yeah. Um, What what of these do I actually need to kind of teach them and which, you know, some of these, maybe it's okay to throw these out now, Mm -hmm. which I find a kind of very interesting, uh, interesting thing, which I think, you know, again, to bring it back to the book on, on critical making is one of the ideas there is that this is not just, um, mindless making, this is not just kind of making things that look nice, but that there is a criticality and in an inquiry Absolutely. around it, which sounds like it's rooted in both your own work, and then also teaching. And then I imagine now as, as president, kind of the way you are are directing the, the institution.
1: Absolutely.
0: And you know, something else about the book that I was thinking about, I reread, um, I actually got the book when I was in grad school, um, because I was interested in design criticism and, and the intersection with practice. And I, I um, got a lot out of it, but I reread your introduction to prepare for this mm-hmm. again. And a thread that I hadn't picked up throughout the book that I, I was noticing this time, is this idea that art and design education is important, not just for art and Artists and designers, but that the this mode of inquiry and these ideas of critical making actually apply to the world at large. And so you mention a, a lawyer who who studied at RISD or someone who owns a restaurant. And what struck me in reading it is that now you are kind of one of those people <laughs> who stud who comes from a very rigorous design background and is has a job that probably most of us wouldn't consider a design job. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious how you think about that. Do you, um, you know, how do you think about your job now? And then this, this career that you've had, how that is influencing that approach?
1: Well, actually, you know, from the way that I'm approaching it is very much as a design job, um, Mm. in the sense that um, higher education is in an unsustainable pattern right now. And Mm -hmm. um, we have such big ambitions for things that we want to achieve, but the financial model is just, is not a sustainable (laughs) model. So um, there are so many challenges that require incredible ingenuity to figure out how to advance something in a way that makes big impact in the world and still works Mm -hmm. um, structurally. So in a way um, you know, it's like, people said to me when I started being president, you know, do you feel bad because you're giving up your studio practice? And I said, no, I'm just applying all that thinking to the, to a, an opportunity to reinvent design education, you know, in a way that's appropriate for RISD or art and design education in a way that's appropriate right for RISD. And, and I still do have a commitment to myself that I make one piece every year. So I still have- Okay,
0: I was going to ask if you're still you still have a studio practice. I do. Okay. And
1: you know, it's it's not as um as, as productive in terms of the number of pieces I'm making, but I'm still advancing my thinking in my studio and still exhibiting work. Um I'm in a show right mm. now and I just finished a piece that will be traveling in a museum show next year and so that's um important to me because it keeps um it's like you know when you're um, working out, you need to keep some sort of baseline <laughs> of exercise, right? But, um, but I also feel uh, the incredible privilege of being in a situation where I'm in a school like RISD with the faculty and students here who are so extraordinary and helping to think about what the next generations of students need. I mean, I feel very fortunate in the career that I've had. It's been incredibly rewarding and I've met amazing people and made some of the most dear friendships ever. And I um, uh-huh. learned an enormous amount about myself along the way, but I want to create those conditions now for the next generation of students that are facing a very different world. So again, maybe it goes back to the beginning of this conversation where there's always the sense of, making something Mm -hmm. you know for the other to experience or engage in I feel very much that way about leading a school like RISD as I did about why I went from photography to furniture
0: Um, right yeah 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 and
1: I will say I just want to put a disclaimer in here that I still love photography and um and actually (laughs) I'm using it now in my furniture in a new way but um Oh, interesting. But for me, um, there was that sense, and and also I think photography, and certainly here um, and in in the contemporary art world, it can be very three dimensional in nature. There are people using photography in ways that weren't, in my thinking, you know, in the seventies when I was a student. But um, there is something about the stance of an object capturing its own identity within a space that was really important to me, and. Um, you know, one could perhaps argue that the same thing could be said about a school um, uh, uh, Mm -hmm. commanding a kind of position in the larger world of education.
0: I'm sorry, this is probably a boring question, but I find it interesting that you're saying that you are approaching this job as a designer, and it it totally makes sense. Um, But I think for context, I'm embarrassed to ask this question. Can you talk a little bit about what is involved in being the president of RISD? Like, what does your day look like? What kind of things are you actually doing?
1: Yeah. Um, well, it's not, a, it's not an embarrassing question. Um, it's okay. every day here. Thank you. I mean, there is kind of a rhythm that runs through because there's an academic calendar. So, you know, there are certain mm-hmm. kinds of flo- flows that happen. But um, we just launched a strategic plan that's going to be our map for Mm -hmm. the next seven years. And so, um, you know, there's there's so many parts to being a president from really thinking about engaging with all of our communities and different um, constituencies from, you know, applicants to alumni all the way in between boards, faculty, students, staff. Um, there's a lot of just management work of making sure that we're using all of our resources well, that we're hiring well, that we're uh, mapping our um, all of our processes to our values, which is very important to me. Mm-hmm. So we establish a set of values that include principles around inclusion and also um, the kind of that really suit our particular population of students, which is not necessarily a mainstream entirely population. So making sure that all the processes that we use in the school map our values, um, making sure our communications echo the principles that we're um, representing in the institution. And then there's lots of travel kind of um, beyond even just specifically RISD, spreading the word about art and design, and its, important, mm-hmm. and its importance as a form of education right now So I do a lot of public speaking and writing and um, participation in panels and juries um, to bring that message out into the world. And I believe that I've really been able to convince communities that don't necessarily understand the full value of what we do to really respect um, our kind of education in a new way. And then there's a lot of fundraising. You know, we have huge needs for um, one of my, First priorities as president was to create a platform around equity and inclusion. And that means figuring out ways to not just get the best students to RISD, but the ones who can't afford to be here to get them to actually show up and be able to succeed here. And then there's a whole process beyond just getting students here to supporting them to succeed. So there are lots of different aspects of. being a president and and it's really um it's incredibly challenging because it's 24 7 you know you're always <laughs> yeah ready. um and um yeah but it's also just watching the the changes that we've been able to make and the ambitions of the new programs and degrees and facilities and um connections with different audiences that we've been able to put into place it's a Hugely exciting time for uh, to be in, in this role.
0: Yeah, and it's it's interesting to to go back to the earlier part of the conversation talking about that kind of balance or intersection of the narrative and the story and the voice with the craftsmanship and the technical skills. And even the way you talked about your job, now there's that balance. There's the, what do we stand for? What do we want to do? Who are we? And then there's also fundraising yeah. and balancing budgets. Exactly. <laughs> and like that's the technical side. Um, that's really interesting.
1: But, you know, they, again, say they didn't really inform each other because, you know, fundraising is not just about getting money it's about getting people engaged and believing in what we do and um, the Mm -hmm. stories that we tell are really the way that people want to participate it's not so much that we can lay out a you know a a business model and say here's the here's the um, you know the term sheet this is what we this is what we need to achieve financially it's more like let me tell you about this student who um, is a DACA student who you know, lived in mm-hmm. um, foster homes his whole life and came here and now is doing you know X or Y um, because of his education here. And he got here because somebody was a mentor in one of the schools who believed in him and um, helped him to find out about a place like this. I mean, these stories are so enthralling when they're about the people who have succeeded or about the projects. I mean, we have students working in projects that are, helping with understanding, you know, living with disabilities or different abilities in ways that um, really bring in whole populations into the realm of design that haven't had um, advocacy before or incredible work around sustainability and climate change and habitats and, you know, all of these things that are making direct positive impact in the world at a time when there's a lot of cynicism and Fear in the world, and so we can be that um, that leading voice that helps people want to participate in making the world a better place.
0: I wanted to dig in a little bit more on design education and kind of where that's headed. And um, I I had read another interview that you had done where where you talked about kind of talking about the importance of design education because a lot of students today are you know basically being taught for jobs that no longer Mm -hmm. exist and. It reminded me of of something one of my advisors in grad school said to me when I started teaching and that she sees her job um, as a design professor to not train students to get um, a job right after they graduate, but to train students for the job that they're going to get 10 years from now, um, because it's going to be completely different. I think about my own career and like the 10 years that I've been working and How many jobs there are that didn't exist when I was? How many design jobs there were, and then how many things I learned in school that are just irrelevant now? Uh, And even you know, even like you mentioned earlier about product design Mm -hmm. and the way that term has been co-opted by Silicon Valley Mm -hmm. of of a, a digital designer is now a product designer. Can you talk about that kind of that pace of change and how design education can both? kind of prepare students for that but then also you know keep up with it or even get out in front of it
1: yeah i mean i think it's a kind of dance between keeping up with it and getting out in front of it but i think what makes it work is having a core kind of understanding about applying what you're learning into new contexts and you know to me that's a real education Mm -hmm. when you can translate Mm -hmm. ideas into new contexts and you know the um the the Every industry is changing so rapidly, so the people who are going to succeed are those who can navigate that change with authority, that have the ability to take what they know from one instance and put it into another. And also, I think individuals who can share bodies of knowledge with others, and I think artists and designers are incredibly good at convening conversations around Mm -hmm. developing ideas so that. You know, a lot of new knowledge is coming out of engineering and art and or design together, or coming out of technology areas mm-hmm. that are really um, made made that are made sense of by artists and designers. Uh, in so the it's those intersections that we really um, can um, foster in a way that I think someone with a more traditional kind of education may not have the versatility to navigate. So. It's That's what I think is so powerful about art and design education right now. If you just think about it in the simplest sense of an artist facing an absolute blank piece of paper and creating something <laughs> that's never existed before, and in a metaphorical way, that's what artists and designers are doing every day, and it's what the world is expecting for um, successful competencies, you know, moving into the future.
0: You've been in this role for a couple of years now. And and I imagine, um, you know, I don't want to say that you're settling in into it, but, you know, you have those rhythms down. It, it is that challenge. It is 24 seven. What's uh, what are you thinking about now or now that you've kind of been in this job for a while? Um, what are the new challenges that are coming up for you in, in this job?
1: Well, there's always this issue of access to education. And that's a huge um, mm-hmm. a commitment of mine. Um, and I've been able to hire an incredible team. We have an, an unbelievable leadership team now that's working super well together so that I think mm-hmm. we can take on more challenges. But um, some of the things that are pillars for what we're focusing on now are around issues of sustainability and climate change and what we can do mm-hmm. uniquely to to help both mitigate and, um, but also Um, design for the um, inevitable things that are um, challenges moving forward. And another big area that we're working on is something we call just societies. And it's about looking at um, uh, populations across the globe and figuring out how to improve lives within those populations, whether it's in urban environments Mm -hmm. or rural Mm -hmm. environments. But what I'm really excited about is that we're developing a platform around the the intersectional space between sustainability and just societies, because, you know, it's very um, well-documented that, that um, populations that will be dealing with climate challenges at the greatest degree of, of challenge are not, um, you know, the wealthy populations. So, yeah, so yeah. Um, we're, we have such a um, committed group of students here who no longer necessarily want to become the sort of famous artist or famous designer they're more interested Mm -hmm. in using their talents to make positive impact in the world and our faculty are very much encouraging that so there's that aspect I think there's also the aspect of thinking about how technology is employed in every discipline that is practiced here and thinking about Mm -hmm. the new ways Mm -hmm. that technology will morph under human control, you know, there's this incredibly frightening thing today in the newspaper about this quantum computing that's been something that you know, oh, yeah. is, is going to potentially yeah. change everything, right, and no more, and, yeah. you know, vast volumes of information processing. How do we deal with that? How does the public deal with that? And, you know, artists and designers yeah. Yeah. Um, have a relationship with technology that can be very um, insightful about communicating how we make sense of all of this. Um, So, so, you know, as we become, you know, our, we're very lucky. All of our numbers are really solid in terms of our enrollments gone up. Our applications have gotten far more selective. Mm. We've hired 40% of the full-time faculty since I've been president have come to the institution in that time. We've, you know, we've had um, the biggest fundraising years we've ever had. So, the numbers are going well, which means, you know, from my style of leading an institution, that it's time to set the ambitions even further out. We really start (laughs) in the position to do that. And so the the strategic plan was not a result of, of, you know, my vision alone. It was a community effort that included, you know, all of our communities, parents, alumni, students, staff, faculty, et cetera. So that um, we feel like as an institution, we're making a commitment to taking, you know, the, the the wonderful aspects of what we teach here and what our alumni and faculty practice here, and make it have genuine impact in the world in a positive way.
0: My last question. This, this is a question that I used to end all of these conversations. And you mentioned earlier that when you started teaching, you you found yourself reading a lot, or kind of, you know, kind of building up the the. Kind of graduate program that that you didn't have. I'm curious what you're reading now. Are, are you kind of in a similar mode? What what's uh what are you reading at uh, the moment? I'm
1: in the middle of 35 books. <laughs> <Yeah. I'm,
0: laughs> I love I'm that. Reading,
1: I mean, for pleasure, right now on planes, I'm reading a book called The Overstory, which is about um, different kind of tables oh. about trees, which is really fascinating but um,
0: I've heard of this.
1: It's a really interesting book and it's very kind of good because you can read a chapter here and there, but I've been reading um, a number of uh, authors from different regions of the world. Um, I've been reading a lot of African Mm. authors. I, you know, I do also read a lot of um, information about, you know, trends and technology and, (laughs) you know, design and changes and all of that. But for pleasure, I, I, I really like, um, reading fictional narratives from different regions of the world and also things that connect to the natural world. I'm really, um, I spend a lot of time mm. when I have any time off, I like to spend it either hiking or on the water, rowing or biking or you know somewhere out in the natural world. And so I'm tending to, since I can't always be there, read things that take me there.
0: Yeah, I love that. Amazon keeps recommending The Overstory to me it's like the top recommendation for me on amazon all the time and so now hearing you you say this i feel like i have to just yeah i know it's
1: really good and i'll also put a pitch in for another book that i read recently that um true just you know full disclosure my sister-in-law wrote but it's called slipper and it's a really interesting kind of dark take on the cinderella story that i think is a really interesting book for particularly women to read um and it's just so well written Mm. so it's very visual writing and i love um writers who use oh, yeah. language to produce really a visual experience
0: oh i love that that that's such a nice way to wrap up this conversation too thank you so much for this i really enjoyed this i feel like i learned a lot um i, I think you're doing great work thank you for being on the podcast thanks
1: so much Jared. nice speaking with you
0: This episode was recorded on October 23rd, 2019. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.